Let's pray together. God, we are a needy people. And in humility, we acknowledge that before you. We need you for the breath in our lungs. We need you in order for our hearts to beat. We need you for the grace to sustain us. God, we need you for comfort. God, we need you for mercy. And Lord, it's for this reason, because we are needy people, that we gather together and we pray and we beseech you. It's for this reason that we sit under the teaching of your word and we search the scriptures to know you. It's because we're a needy people that we belong to a body where other people can help meet our needs by your grace. And so this morning, as we turn to your word, we just acknowledge our need before you. I pray that you would sharpen our minds to understand the scriptures. I pray that you would encourage our hearts to live according to what your word teaches. Um, I pray that you would make us a community, one people committed to Christ and his glory. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time together as we study the scriptures in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you're not already there, open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to remind you as you're turning there what we talked about last week, how because of God's mercy, we have become one people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We've been uh, made God's possession so that we might proclaim the excellency of Jesus Christ. And so now, out of that identity, as we look at our next couple of verses here, Peter's going to draw some practical application for our lives. He's going to tell us how we should live in light of the truth that we are God's people. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And just before we do that, I'm going to structure my message around the seven verbs that we find in these verses. So as we read, I want you to kind of keep an eye out for those verbs. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, de good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so before we get to the verbs, I said there's seven verbs. I want to deal with the first word that we encounter, beloved. Do you remember who Peter is writing this letter to? Maybe you don't because it was a couple months ago we looked at the opening verses of 1 Peter and we found there that Peter's writing to his fellow uh, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ in Pontus, or Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. If you were to look that area up on a map, what you, what you would find is that it's about 180,000 square miles. Okay? Peter does not have a car. He does not have an airplane. So do you think that Peter had the opportunity to meet all of the people that he is addressing in this letter? The answer has to be no, right? Not a chance. There's no way 
that Peter has a personal, meaningful, intimate relationship with all the people who he is writing this letter to. And yet he has the audacity to call them beloved. Isn't that interesting? What I want you to understand here is that it's actually not necessary to have a close personal relationship with someone in order to love that person deeply. And Peter does love these people deeply. They're his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the love that he has for them is a God-given, God-sustained love because he understands they are part of his family through Christ. They are in Christ just as Peter is in Christ, and so they're his beloved. And he loves them deeply also because he's committed to their good. That's part of what it means to love somebody. You want what is best for them. When you love somebody, you desire good for them. When you invest your life as a Christian pursuing the good of other people, you are expressing love for them. Peter wants these people to know Jesus more. What could be more good for them than to know Jesus more? He wants them to be close to God. He wants them to honor the Lord in the way that they live their lives. And he wants them to be encouraged by the care and the concern that he has for them. And so he truly loves them. He can call them his beloved without ever even meeting them. So I want to get just a little bit biographical for just a moment here. I want to tell you that this is the same way that I feel about you as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as participants in our church here. I can call you beloved. You are my beloved. I pray for you. You may not know me in any context other than the guy who kind of gets up here and uh, says things on Sunday morning and maybe greets you outside from time to time. But I love you. I pray for you. And I express my love for you in laboring over God's word so that I might understand it rightly, so that I might encourage you by it and teach according to its truth. Along with the other elders, I seek to lead our church with integrity to make sure that the things that I'm teaching you to do according to God's word are the things that I also am doing in my own life. I seek to be a man of God, not only for my own sake and for my family and for God's sake, but to some degree for your sake, so that I can honestly say, follow my example as I seek to follow what Scripture teaches. And I'm interested in knowing each of you personally. I, I confess I'm kind of introverted. I can be a little bit shy, even though I can also stand up here and preach. But even if I don't know you personally, even if this is your very first Sunday at Maricopa Springs, I want you to understand that the truth is I, I love you sincerely because I'm committed to your good. I've poured my heart and soul into serving you, into serving this church, into serving Maricopa, the community, so that you might see Jesus so that you might come to love him more, so that you might come to trust him more, to know his grace, to be well-equipped in your daily life, to walk according to what Jesus calls us to do, and to seek God's kingdom first and foremost. Now, since planting Maricopa Springs Family Church 13 years ago, uh, my priorities have been first to love God more each day, 
Second, to love my wife and my children in a way that honors God, to lead them with humility and courage. And then third, to invest my life into serving our church because I love you. So all of that to say that I share Peter's sentiment. In Christ Jesus, you are my beloved. And I want you to know that. Now, as I said, I want to really focus on the seven verbs that give the action and movement to these verses. So let's get to that. The first verb that Peter writes here in verse 11 is, I urge you. I urge you. This is a high importance word. When something is urgent, you understand it is of vital importance. It's, it's serious. It's crucial. If you ignore an urgent matter, then usually you do so to your own peril. And Peter is going to put the force of the urgency behind the second verb that we encounter, which is to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So Peter urgently wants us to live lives of holiness and godliness. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Before we get there, I want to unpack this verb, I urge you, a little bit more. I think it's really interesting. Uh, In the Greek, the word is parakaleo, parakaleo. It comes from the verb kaleo. Um, But the reason this matters is because uh, it's very similar to another Greek word that maybe you might be familiar with. It comes from the same verb. That word is parakletos, also coming from the verb kaleo. Can you hear the similarities? Parakaleo and parakletos. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, that's okay. Parakletos is used by Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 7, when he tells his disciples that when he leaves to go and be with the Father, he will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So sometimes, if you pay attention, you'll hear Christians say that a name for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. That means the Helper. Now, I bring this up because of the similarities between the words that connect the Holy Spirit to the urgent calling that Peter is giving to us as believers, telling us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These things come from the same verb, the helper, the Holy Spirit, and I urge you. So how can we succeed in the work that Peter urges us to do, to not become slaves to the desires of our flesh? Well, only through the helper. Only through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Yes, we are urged to abstain from our sinful desires, but the real work of holiness and righteousness that needs to be done in us must ultimately be a work of God done upon us. It's the Spirit himself who we need to urge us onward with his energy, with his holiness. And so I think as Peter writes this word, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I think he has in mind the teaching of Jesus about the helper, the Holy Spirit. Maybe a way that we could think about our relationship to the Holy Spirit would be to think about um, a sailboat. If we are the sailboat, then we must urgently do the work of raising those sails with the intention to catch the wind that will move us. And we must be committed to the work of taking that 
steering wheel and making sure that the rudder of the ship is pointing us to the shores of God's heavenly kingdom. Setting the sails and steering the ship, that's our work, that's our responsibility that we must carry out with urgency. But you see, a sailboat is useless unless the wind blows to move it where it intends to go. The wind of the Spirit, the breath of the Spirit of God must provide for us the power that we need for that movement to be accomplished. And so in a beautiful dance of holiness, we submit ourselves to the will of the Spirit and he pushes us ever onward deeper into Christ-likeness. And the reason why we must engage in this journey, the reason why we must sail our lives further into the heart of God is because we're sojourners and exiles, like Peter says in verse 11. A sojourner is a weird word. I, I doubt that any of us would use that on a weekly basis to describe something. Um, but it just means a, a foreigner, a traveler, a, a person who's passing through. The word comes to us out of the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was brought out of slavery in Egypt Before they entered into the promised land, they wandered for many years through the desert without a home to call their own, without a place that was theirs. They were sojourners and wanderers even as they were already God's chosen people. And as for us, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people chosen by God, a royal priesthood, and yet, even as those things describe us, we currently wander through this world where we feel like strangers. We are without a permanent home in this world. This world that, if we're honest, is full of darkness and sin and evil. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable place for us. We're surrounded by pagans. That's what I call non-believers. People filled with godlessness people who've totally surrendered themselves over to the sinful passions of the flesh. And so with urgency, because we are sojourners in a foreign land, we must set our sails and we must hold that rudder and let the Spirit of God carry us homeward to the heart of God. We are citizens of a different kingdom. And therefore, even though we live in this current kingdom of darkness, we must let our conduct now in this life correspond to that kingdom where the will of God is done. Which brings us back to our second verb found in verse 11, abstain. Peter urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So what are the passions of the flesh? Well, they are evil desires sinful impulses, appetites and cravings for things that we falsely believe will satisfy our wants and our desires, but ultimately lead down a path of self-destruction. The passions of the flesh are all the things that we tend to seek after in this life that are not good for us. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21 gives us a fairly robust list. Let me read it for you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, that's not an exhaustive list by any means. The more you read Scripture, the more you see that this list can be filled out by other words, but it definitely paints a pretty vivid picture, doesn't it, of what the passions of the flesh are. Now, some people might read a, a, a list like that, and uh, they might say in their minds, or maybe even they, they'll say to you, oh man, God just doesn't want you to have any fun. That God that you worship, he's just like the cosmic killjoy. He like hates everything that's fun. He doesn't want anybody to have a good time. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? I mean, I've literally had people say that to me when describing the Christian life to them. So that brings up a question. Why? Why, why does Peter urge us to abstain from the passions of the flesh? Why can't we just indulge these things and go and participate in them and enjoy them? I would say the answer is found in our third verb. Because the passions of our flesh wage war against our souls. Now the great irony of the flesh is that it's actually hell-bent on its own self-destruction. The flesh is spiritually suicidal, you could say. Its lust for pleasure is so great that it cannot see that in the object of its desires is actually the poison that will lead to its own demise. So why does Peter urge us to abstain from the passion of the flesh? Well, it's because he understands that all the things that the flesh desires, which are contrary to God, are engaged in a great campaign to destroy you, to destroy your soul. The pleasure that's promised in the passions of the flesh is a bit like the enticing scent of a Venus flytrap. You catch a whiff of it and it draws you in and you find yourself in the jaws of that plant only to find them close as that Venus flytrap devours you after enticing you in. The passions of the flesh care nothing about our good, nothing about our true well-being. They care nothing about our true joy or virtue. The passions of the flesh lead to some fleeting pleasure or euphoria in the short term. Maybe that's true, but that sinful passion is ultimately leading us to death. And because God loves us, he tells us, abstain from those things that will destroy you. God invites us into something greater than our own self-destruction and ultimate misery. Now, what's really interesting to me about the battlefield where this war for our souls is taking place is that it appears to be on the plane of the flesh, but it's actually not. Because notice what Peter says here. He says, the passions of the flesh wage war against your flesh. No. He says, the passions of your flesh, or the passions of the flesh, wage war against your soul. 
It's a bit of a bait and switch. I think we fall into habits of sin and we can begin to believe this lie that these things won't affect us very much. Right? I'm doing this thing, but in reality, the consequences don't appear to be significant. Our bodies are quite resilient, and so they can hold up under a lot of abuse. Let me give you some examples. You know, if you engage in the sin, the, the, the passionate pursuit of pleasure in something like gluttony, just eating and satisfying your desire for food, you might gain a few pounds. That doesn't really seem like a big deal, does it? Or maybe you decide to watch some pornography and over the long haul of engaging in that behavior, all it does is maybe diminish your sexual desire for your wife, but for the most part it feels harmless. You can really get away with it in your body. Or maybe you allow yourself to feel envious of other people. You look at the groups that they're a part of and you want to be part of it. Or you look at the stuff that they have and you wish that you owned it. And you just feed your jealousy and your envy. What's the consequence of that? I mean, maybe you get a little less sleep at night because you're thinking about how cool that guy's car is and you don't have a car like that. But other than that, it's relatively inconsequential, isn't it? Or maybe you feed your anger and your rage, you get ticked off at your children, or you say naughty things at the stupid people who drive on 347, or you badmouth your coworkers behind their back. The doctor might say, hey, you've got some uh, high blood pressure here. But other than that, your anger feels really like it doesn't matter much. You feel fine. But the things that are manifesting themselves in your flesh as the passions of the flesh, they're not doing their real danger on the level, their real damage on the level of your flesh. Their real devastating damage is on the level of your soul. You're being destroyed by your sin, but because it's happening in this unseen realm of the soul, you might not even realize that it's occurring. Or think about it another way, okay? If in order to get an abortion, a woman had to go into the doctor and slice open an 18-inch cut in her stomach to get that baby out in order to commit infanticide, she might think twice about that procedure. With the recovery time and the hardship and the difficulty and the scar, that's some serious trauma to her body. But the silent trauma of rending her soul to commit that act, that can go mostly unnoticed. She could keep it entirely secret. Or a man, if he had to endure painful, obvious, black and purple blistering, pussing lesions on his face for the pornography that he was looking at secretly behind closed doors, he probably wouldn't indulge in that lust very frequently if he had to go out in public with that kind of physical, bodily consequence for his sin. But the black and purple blistering, pussing lesions on his soul from living contrary to God's wisdom when it comes to sexuality... 
we can't really see that. It's very easy to ignore. So do you see what I'm getting at? The passions of the flesh, unhindered, do their worst damage at the level of the soul, spiritually destroying us, often in very subtle and unnoticed ways. And Scripture says that we should be waging the battle against sin, not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 34 says, For though we walk according to the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now that's the good news. The good news is that precisely in the place where you need the most help, which is in your soul at the spiritual level, is precisely where God offers all of the resources available to him. God offers to you as his child through the power of the Holy Spirit, the helper, as God urges you towards holiness, he offers to you his power to destroy those wartime strongholds of sin. So how do you really kick a sinful habit like pornography that destroys the flesh? Well, you fight spiritually. You fight through prayer. You appeal to God that he might give you mercy and grace to fight temptation. You ask him for his power to do what you cannot do on your own. You consume scripture that makes you wise and you set your mind on the things of God, not on the fleshly desires. You ask God to give you a greater portion of his spirit, a greater portion of his contentment and joy and pleasure so that you're filled with the greater pleasure of Christ that presses out all the other false pleasures of the flesh. You confess your sins, not just to God, but even to trustworthy brothers and sisters in the faith who can first rebuke you and then encourage you and hold you accountable and pray for you. And you give God thanks that everything that you need is found in him and he's offering it to you, he's providing it for you. Now I just use pornography as an example because it's a rampant issue in our world today, but it's really the same battle plan for any sinful habit that you have. Greed, self-image issues, anger, fear, pride. The fight that you are engaging in to master the passions of the flesh, it has to be done on a spiritual level with the power of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you see? It was God who gave you the spiritual birth and it is God himself who has the power to sustain you, to bring you from that spiritual birth through maturity to give you victory over sin. That cannot happen merely by the power of the flesh. How many times have you tried and failed? We must fight in order to come to God so that he can give us the victory that we need to win that war over our soul. Now, sadly, all too often we don't do that. And you know why? One of the the reasons, I think, is that we have 
a, a sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome. Have you heard of this, Stockholm syndrome? Stockholm syndrome is when hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors. They begin to actually feel positive feelings towards the people that are abusing them. Can you imagine that? Sin is an abuser, and it holds us hostage through lies and threats and false promises. And we know that about sin, don't we? Don't we know that? And yet somehow we still have this weird and awful love for the very thing that we know that if we continue to chase it will just destroy us. Well, it's time to wake up. It's time to realize that we are at war, that we are living in wartime. Sin is not our friend. The passions of the flesh are not something that we can surrender to or try and call a truce with. Like you stay over there and I'll stay over here and everything will be fine. No, sin is like an invading force seeking to conquer. So I think it's important to ask ourselves this question. Are you living as if this is wartime? Are we currently living our daily lives as if we are actually engaged in a war? It's been a long time since our country, the U.S., was really involved in a significant, massive war like World War II. So we have no idea because we've not lived in it, the kind of mobilization that is required to win in a war. We don't understand the level of commitment that's necessary. We don't understand the kind of sacrifice that it requires in order to be victorious in the midst of an all-out war. We've had many decades of relative peace, and so as a result, like we as a people living in America, have become soft, sentimental. We, we're complacent. We lack the kind of courageous commitment that's necessary to win wars. And if that's the kind of life that you are living when it comes to your spiritual warfare against sin, if your response to sin is to be a soft, sentimental, complacent, comfortable person, as if you're living in peacetime, then you're doomed. You're not going to win that war because you're not committed. You're not prepared for that fight. So listen to some of the language that the Bible uses to describe how we should engage with this war for our soul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified, my friends. Do you know what that means? To crucify someone is to murder them violently, publicly. Like with every effort to stamp out and shame everything that they stand for. Does that describe how you Wage the war for your soul against sin? Can you say that you are battle ready to crucify the passions of your flesh? That's no joke right there. 
Or how about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Do you fight against sin with such fervor that you would gladly be bruised and bloodied if that's what it requires to put that sin in the grave and be done with it? Um, I recently forced all four of my children to do jujitsu at Nick and Anthony's gym uh, called Los Gallos. And, and sometimes because uh, they hate it because they come back, you know, tired and sore. And I mean, they spend an hour practicing these different uh, moves and it's, it's difficult. And that's good for them. And I hope it's building a physical self-discipline for them that will actually translate into the spiritual self-discipline that they need, where they can see that it's going to take fighting with every fiber of their being, being fully committed with all of their strength to victory over sin in their lives. Sin is an enemy combatant. It is absolutely committed to the destruction of your soul. It will destroy you if you allow it. And so you can never stop fighting to be victorious. This is a battle being waged for your soul. Peter says. And so, beloved, I pray that you would fight for that victory, that we would fight for that victory, that we would wage war against sin in our lives because sin is engaged in an effort to destroy us. Our fourth verb here is keep. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This means that our lives, obviously, in the eyes of the pagans around us, should be honorable, moral, honest, upright, good, virtuous, principled, full of truth and beauty. And the word keep implies that it should have been that way in the past, and it should be that, that way now, and it should continue that way in the future. A consistent life of doing what is honorable, what is good, with integrity. Not just sometimes, when you feel like it. Not just when your spouse does their thing first and then you'll do your part. Always. So how do we know what is honorable? That's actually a really important question in a relativistic, pluralistic society. Well, we look at the life of Christ. We look to his conduct. We look to Scripture to see what pleases God, and that's how we know what is honorable. Now, unfortunately, we encounter a problem with that when we get to our fifth verb, which is speak. If we do what is honorable in the sight of God, then the pagans and the Gentiles and the God-haters, you know what they're going to do? They're going to accuse you of doing evil. They will speak against us. See, they want to define what is honorable. And they would define it absolutely contrary to how God defines what is honorable. This is why they want to compel you to celebrate Pride Month. I can't get it off my calendar. Do you use a digital calendar? I can't get it off mine. That's why they want to force you to use preferred pronouns. And pay for abortions with your tax dollars. That's why in the TV shows and the movies that you watch, they insert all of that sexual filth to get you in line to comply. 
They want to compel you in any way that they can to call what is good evil and what is evil good. But we must keep our conduct honorable in the sight of God. Notice Peter does not say keep your conduct honorable in the sight of the pagans. He says keep your conduct honorable, objectively, in the eyes of God. The opinions of pagans and Gentiles be damned as we do what is right in the sight of God. So be it if they speak against us as evildoers because we won't join them in the sin that they participate in. And we won't call what is evil good. And we won't denigrate what is good by calling it evil. As long as God is pleased by our conduct, so be it. And notice the hard implied promise here, okay? Peter does not say, if they speak against you. He says, when they speak against you. Don't be deceived. There's no middle ground here. The world crucified Jesus for doing the will of God the Father. And so if you do the will of God, the world will slander you, the world will hate you, the world will revile you. They will even go so far as to call your good conduct evil. And we should expect that. Because Jesus warned us that if they treated him that way, they'll treat us this way. But they're not going to be able to deny what they see. That's our sixth verb, that when we do good and honor God, those who speak against us, calling us evildoers, they will not be able to deny what they see. They'll see us loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us. That's going to be undeniable. They'll see our courage and our conviction They'll see our steadfast and immovable hearts in the face of challenges. They will see the glory of Jesus displayed in the divine grace through which we live our lives. Now, they may hate us, but they won't be able to deny the truth of what they see. So our last verb tells us that they will actually glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is telling us that on the day that Jesus Christ returns, even those who hated us for our godly lives, our good conduct, even they will have to acknowledge that Jesus is king. When he comes in the radiant glory of the Father, even they will have to acknowledge that he is who he says he is. The truth will be revealed and they will not be able to deny it or disagree with it. Now look, I think there's two possibilities for what Peter means in this final phrase here, okay? That those who speak against us will give glory to God. The first possibility is the hope-filled one. It's that these God-haters who watch our conduct, who see our lives, will be so impacted by the way that we live our honorable conduct, that they will glorify God, not only on the day of visitation when he comes, but as they surrender their hearts to God in response to our good conduct in the face of evil. When we live with honor and Christ-like love, I think Peter's saying there's the possibility that those people might be brought to repentance and faith in Christ. 
so that on the day when Christ returns, they too will acknowledge that he is Lord of their own lives. Some will forsake their life of sin because of your good conduct. They'll become a follower of Jesus. They'll be children of God. And they'll celebrate when Christ returns alongside of you. And we should pray for people we know that that would be their story. That even though now they might hate you and revile you for your good conduct, you should pray for them. That as they see your good conduct, they would come to also see Christ who lives in you. But if that doesn't happen before the day of visitation when Christ returns, then the other possibility of what Peter means here is that these Gentiles and pagans who hate good and love evil, they're still going to give glory to God on the day that Christ Jesus returns. Because on that day, the truth of the glory of Christ will resound throughout the heavens like a deafening roar, and Christ will be revealed And the blinding light of his righteousness will force every person to their knees to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And he is good, and he is right, and he is true. And the war is over. And they have lost. And the children of God have won. And God is justified to bring his wrath upon evil. And God is gloriously good and gracious and kind to reward his faithful servants for their good deeds for the fight they fought, for the victory that they won, for their lives of honorable conduct in the face of hardship. And no matter what, at the end of all things, God's majesty, it will be revealed. And all mankind will be compelled to offer to him the glory and praise that is rightly his. So let me conclude just with a reminder of the application from these verses. Real quick. First, abstain from the sinful passions of the flesh. For God's sake, that his name might be praised. And also for your sake, that you might live. Second, live a good and honorable life as a Christian for God's sake, because he's worthy of your love and your obedience. And also for the sake of the world, that others might see the beauty of your honorable conduct and give praise to Jesus. And so in short, I guess I would say in all that you do, let your life be a testimony to the glory of Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you that the victory in this war that is being waged for our souls is already won by Christ. We thank you that he has done what we could never do on our own. But I pray that we would have the endurance that we need to abstain from the sinful passions of the flesh that we would fight this good fight, that we wouldn't do it on the level of the flesh, but that we would do it by the power of the Spirit. God, would you help our conduct to be honorable? And in being honorable, we pray that it would also be winsome, that our neighbors might see our lives and give glory to Jesus, that our friends, our family, our coworkers who don't know you by observing our lives, would see the glory of Jesus and trust him like we have. And so, Lord, I thank you that you hold us fast in the midst of this war for our souls. And I pray that we would be committed to living as if we are in the midst of wartime. In Christ's name, amen.